Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my third conversation with Dr Ashton, based upon his book, Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Today we're examining the reasons why a living cell cannot arise by chance. For those listening to this series for the first time, Dr Ashton is a chemist working in the field of food chemistry and has a PhD in epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome John, it's great to be talking with you again. Great to be here Barry. Our topic today is fundamental to the viability of the theory of evolution. So has anyone ever observed cells forming by natural physical and chemical processes? No, certainly not. Um, Indeed, this is one of the major challenges uh, for those uh, scientists that uh, believe that life can form somehow by itself by physical processes. There are absolutely major, major problems with them trying to to solve this. No one's ever observed uh, life forming by chance. And in actual fact, from our knowledge of biochemistry at the moment, it's absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible. Mm. So if we haven't been able to observe it, has anyone been able to come up with a viable explanation as to how it might occur? Well, no, this is one of the uh, challenges that biology researchers still are trying to to face. Uh, how can life form? And, and there's lots of theories have uh, been uh, proposed, um, laboratory experiments have been tried, but they're, they're not coming anywhere near close to getting uh, life to form by itself from non-living molecules, even in the laboratory, even under ideal conditions, even with intelligent scientists programming the ideal conditions and putting the right chemicals there. um, They're they're nowhere near uh, trying to get a living cell to form. So it's simply assumed that life arose by natural processes. Is that correct? Well, that well, that's right. This is. I mean, you read the the textbooks, and they'll say that you know the Earth formed four and a half billion years ago, and they'll say something like life arose soon after, or e- even more specific articles will um, just just make this statement. For example, in in two double o nine, so the hundred and fifty years after Darwin's book was published. There was a major article in Scientific American um, in the September issue, I think, from memory, uh, on the origin of life. Now, one of the authors of that article was the professor of genetics at Harvard University. So here we have one of the top universities in the world um, and a leading professor of genetics at the university. He's writing an article on the origin of life and what he says is that about 3.7 billion, uh, 3.7 billion years ago, life arose, but they don't know how. They don't know. So this is an assumption that they make, and I, I think this is important for people to understand. We've got the top researchers in the world, and they don't know how life arose. Hmm. They don't know. As a matter of fact. Uh, they they raise and talk about the the major problems that they've had with the experiments and and so this is something that people need to understand that scientists make this statement we 
that life arose. And they assume, well, we're here. Um, and because many of them don't believe in God or they don't bring God into the scenario, then they say that life must have arisen by chance. It, 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 ha- it must have happened. But there are other scientists... Um, for example, the uh, scientists that uh, developed the uh, mapped the human genome, uh, Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, he, for example, recognised the impossibility and he said God must have created life. Mm. And so th- that, that's, that's the bottom line. Life and a living cell is powerful evidence for the existence of God. For a miracle, it's totally outside science. So the textbooks are just simply assuming that life arose by chance. That's right. They they, they have to, uh, otherwise they've, they've got God. They don't know how it happened, but they say, well, because we're here, it must have happened. Tell me about uh, NASA's definition of life. Well, this is this assumption that ev- evolution can explain everything. And, of course, the origin of the first cell is what we call chemical evolution. Now, some people who have uh, been critical of the the title of my book say, well, evolution doesn't deal with the origin of first life. Um, But there is a whole field there which is called chemical evolution, and that is how the molecules first came together to form the first living species, if you if you believe this. Now, this is so ingrained that this happened that NASA, the U- US Space uh, Authority there, have defined life as some self-replicating chemical system that can undergo evolution. Now, this is very, very subtle. What they're saying is that you know, evolution is such an established fact that we're bringing it into the definition of life. But I think, you know, perhaps in a future program we can say that even the ever once you have life, it can't evolve into more complex systems either. We, we can deal with that in another time. But I, I think few people understand the complexity of the requirements for something to be alive, even in the most simplest form. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And we're going to see that today, aren't we? Mm, mm, yes, we'll talk about it. How that. can they be so confident about the time when life arose? Well, all these dates are based on radiometric dating, of course. And, you know, radiometric dating in many people's minds now is, is a given. You know, we, we talk about, you know, so many programs on, on television talk about things, oh, this is so many million years old and this is so many million years old and that happened so many million years ago. But And so when they talk about life arising on Earth 3.7 billion years ago or the Australian academic uh, Professor Stanley Nimmingston at the University of New South Wales, he's another guy that has looked at um, uh, the origin of life and uh, the chemical origin of life. And again, as he writes, there's no known mechanism to explain how the uh, first living organism could form. But again, he puts a a date on it that it happened about 3,750 million years ago. Now, these scientists are working in this area. They are assuming data from other scientists that are working in the radiometric dating area. Now, these scientists measure the the ages of rocks, and there are only certain types of rocks that we can measure the ages of. And so these are the volcanic rocks. And so they measure the ratio of isotopes or different elements in these rocks. And so we know from our studies that we can observe today 
that if we have an unstable radiometric uh, radioactive element, that is a, an element that's uh, nucleus isn't stable, so it's going to break down and emit particles and change into either another element or a, another form of that element, which we call an isotope. These things happen over long periods of time. So the half-life might be a million years or 10 million years or, or longer. That means half of it degrades over that period of That's time. That's right, yes. So exactly, spot on. So half of the radioactive material will have decayed away and changed uh, in a certain period of time, say 10 million years, and so that's the half-life of that particular uh, element, uh, radioactive isotope. Now, what it means is that they analyse the concentrations that we find today of these elements. And they, in order to calculate the age, have to assume what the concentration would have been at some period in the past. Because that's how the, the difference in the concentrations is what they use to calculate the age. So they have to assume something about the concentration of the rock way back millions and millions of years ago in their time scale. And if you don't get that right, then you don't get an accurate and the, the, the age for the rock. Yes. Uh, the important point is that we can't know. We can't know if those assumptions are right. Well, does, does this whole process work for rocks of a known age? Well, when we get to rocks of known ages, we have major, major problems here because when we get to rocks of known age, and again, we can talk about this in more detail another time too, we get millions of years. So even though these rocks might only be hundreds of years old, we can date them and still get ages of millions of years. I mean, there's major problems with dating, and we can can talk about this in terms of when we look at other ways that we can estimate age, like from erosion rates, or there are other forms of dating where we use, um, say, carbon-14, which has a much shorter half-life of, uh, say, five and a half thousand, or 5,750 years, approximately. So this is a much faster decay rate, uh, rate of decay system. And for the same material, say we can have a piece of rock trapped in a lava, we can measure the age of the lava, and we can measure the age of, sorry, a piece of trapped wood trapped in lava. We can measure the age of the wood by radiometric dating. So this is the same system. We assume that the lava encased the wood. We'll get a very young age for the wood. We'll get a very old age for the lava, yet we know that the lava would have crystallised about the same time that it buried the wood. There's lots of examples like that. This is a really serious problem because if Mm. you've got um, rocks of a known age that you can't date accurately with these processes. How can you be sure of the rocks of an unknown age? And then if you're relying on the, those ages to determine the age of the fossil, then the whole science is just in chaos, isn't it? Well, definitely. There are, there are major problems because, see, when the fossils were originally dated, they were dated long before uh, we had radiometric dating methods, which were invented around about the turn of last century, around about the 1900s. But before then, they had estimated the ages on the basis of sedimentation rates, the rate at which these fossils were buried, because these fossils are buried um, largely in water-deposited sediments. And those erosion rates were based, on again, on guesses and estimations. They weren't based on reliable data at that time. Look, the, the whole dating scenario that we base the geological column on is based on a very large number of assumptions 
that we can't verify and prove. And, and this is an important thing to understand. Um, for many years, I was the chief chemist in a national association of testing authorities, accredited laboratory. And my responsibility was to sign off the results because these became legal documents. Now, for us to be registered, we had to use methods that what we call had been validated. They had been validated by using um, unknowns that were had been checked by other laboratories, a number of other laboratories that were then based on known samples. So we had known reference samples that we would check. So we know absolutely what the concentration is in our reference solution. And when we did a reference sample and when we did our analyses, we had this known reference sample there to check. And that reference sample was known absolutely. Now, we don't have any standard reference sample rocks that we can say, right, this rock is 10 million years old. This rock is 100 million years old. This rock is 1,000 million years old. Therefore, we can calibrate our system. We don't have those rocks. We don't have standard reference materials to validate the method. And so this is one of the important things. These methods have not really been validated in the true sense. We can't know the ages. And we'll look, we can look at this, as I said, in more detail later. When we look at other methods of estimating ages, like erosion rates, we, we find that the dates measured by radioactive methods just don't fit. What you're telling me is that this is a pretty imprecise field. You were saying before that most of the fossils were in sedimentary rocks, and yet... It wasn't easy to date sedimentary rocks by these radiometric dating methods. No, well, that's right. Well, we assume that if the sedimentary rock, as say, occurs over the top of some lava flow and then there's another lava flow over the top of it, we often date the crystal minerals in the lava flows. And so we assume that the sedimentary layer is going to be somewhere in between those two dates. And so, yes, it's all by inference. I, I think that is reasonable to assume the, that the age of the sedimentary layer in between the two lava flows that we can... Uh, that but you've got, to get the, you've got to get the right date for those. But if we can't date those lava yeah. flows accurately, um, then, you know, this may... I, I mean, it's, it's meaningless trying to date those sedimentary rocks. And I think what you've raised is a very important point. We have looked at radiometric... We have looked at lava flows that have historically been observed. You know, they're only 50 years old, 100 years old, 200 years old. People have observed these lava flows coming out of the volcano. Geologists have then subsequently gone and taken samples from those lava flows. We've then dated those in the laboratory, and we get them as millions of years old. But yet we know they're only hundreds of years old. And that's something we can know. Why? Because we physically observe those events happening and people wrote them down. We had the dates. We had the actual dates when that, that happened. We're, we've got really, really serious problems. There's huge differences, as I said, between when we date samples by carbon-14 dating, when we date them by... Um, the standard radiometric uh, methods, when we look at erosion rates, when we look at deposition rates, we, we get all, all different numbers. I'm, hear, I'm hearing you say that we can't really be sure of the age of a fossil 
in a sedimentary rock? No, not when we go back to really, really ancient times like this. And, but what happens is this, that for the theory of evolution to occur from this whatever pr- first primitive life form was in their, in their sequence, for that to evolve into all the complexity now, they need, in their minds, a very, very long period of time. So that's why they're very, very happy to jump on these results that give these very old ages and rather than look at them critically and say, well, hang on, what are the assumptions here? They, they grab those dates. They hang on to those. So, oh, that's, that's really good. But it's interesting, and, and again, we can talk about some specific examples of this later. There, there are some classic examples, say, in the origin of... Um, of the evolution of humans, where we say, well, you know, these these particular types of humanoids uh, should be about two two million years old, um, and they've gone and they've dated the, the 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 layers above and below where those fossils were found, and they've said, whoa, these are too old. They've come out at say whatever it is, you know, two and a half, three million years old. Oh no, that that can't be right. They have gone back several times and radiometrically dated the rocks until eventually they got a date that fitted, in their mind, the evolutionary model of around two million years. Now, this is documented, and I actually talk about it in a later chapter in, uh, in my book, Evolution Impossible. This is documented in the literature where they went back and they kept on radiometrically dating the rocks until they got an age that matched, in their mind, the date that they wanted to fit their evolutionary tree. I mean, it, it just blows your mind to think that this then is is science, and this is in our in our journals, um, and yet they ignore completely the the other evidence that when we look at the biochemistry, the whole lot of the evolutionary claims that they're making are absolutely impossible. Can't happen. So even if we could date the the the, um, the fossils accurately, that still doesn't tell us how life arose by chance, does it? No, definitely not. It, it just gives them a... a t- what it does is it puts it back into the dim, distant past, in their view, and they 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 don't know. Now, some people have recognised this, haven't they? And we've come up with a theory called panspermia. What's that about? Oh, OK. So panspermia is the, the uh, hypothesis that life on Earth started by somehow some primitive, minute life coming here from outer space on a meteorite uh, or maybe a comet crashed into the Earth and uh, had a lot of ice and water and was carrying some uh, some sort of little primitive life form uh, from somewhere else in, in outer space. So this is really an acknowledgement that the evidence for the origin of first life is pretty weak or non-existent. Oh, yes. I, th- I think... The, the researchers that understand the biochemistry of a simple cell it, and understand that it's so complex and the requirements to form the structures in the simple cell are so complex and, and so numerous that when they do the probabilistic calculations, they can see it's absolutely impossible and for, to, for life to have formed by chance on Earth. So they say, well, maybe it came from our space. But no matter where in the universe you are, if we assume that the same laws of physics and chemistry that we observe here on Earth operate in other parts of the universe, and that's really an assumption that science does make, 
then you're going to have the same problem of life arising no matter where you are. You're still going to form the same molecules. You still involve the same elements. You know, we've got 90 or so stable elements that life can form from. And that's, we still have chemical reactions that are bound by the structures of these particular elements. They can only react and bond in certain particular ways. We still only have certain physical uh, f- uh, elements available, you know, magnetism and heat and different forms of radiation available to us and gravity. So no matter where we are, we've got the same physical and chemical factors that can influence the formation of life. And we know from our studies here on Earth that these chemical reactions are, are limited. Okay, so and it, it can't, no matter where it is in the universe, still can't form. So if there's no observational evidence hmm. for the naturalistic origin of a living cell, yeah. is it possible to say that it cannot happen? For example, just because we haven't observed it doesn't mean that it can't happen, does it? But is there well, evidence well, to well, show that we, we can, it can't well, happen? Well, yes, when we when we look at the, uh, the the requirements of a cell to form, so when you look at most of the textbooks, they say that life arose in the, in the seas, in the primitive seas, on the earth, uh, in some sort of soup or concentrated pond, life formed. They generally have it in aqueous environment. But as the geneticist researchers pointed out in, in their article in Scientific American, the requirements of the cell require, from, uh, require very long chain monomers. So in a living system, we have these what we call biopolymers. These are very, very long chain molecules. And these have to have formed from simpler molecules. And the way that they form is by removing water out of the OHH bonds to connect those bonds directly and with water then forming. And Le Chatelier's principle tells us that that isn't going to happen in a water situation. Water will tend to break those bonds. You're not going to lose water, have a chemical reaction that gives up water in a chemical, in in an environment so rich in water. And this was recognised, even in the Scientific uh, American article in 2009, the the lead author there from... um, well, the, the, the co-author there from Harvard University pointed out, you know, we, we've got a major problem here for life arising in water They're, because these biopolymers aren't going to form then. But not only do you have to have one biopolymer forming, you've got to have millions of these identical biopolymers forming all at once. But they're not all the same composition. So you've got to have 100,000 of this one, another 100,000 of that one, another 100,000 of that one. All of these giant molecules forming. Now, one of the things where they've tried to do this in the laboratory, and again, the Scientific American article pointed this out, under ideal conditions in the laboratory, we can produce some of the simple building blocks from even simpler building blocks. But when it comes to biopolymers, trying to form biopolymers, that is these longer chain molecules, particularly the proteins that are going to encode information, under ideal conditions in the laboratory using ideal highly reactive forms of these molecules, we can only actually even then only form very small biopolymers, nowhere near the size that are required. And again, that's pointed out in the... 
uh, in the Scientific American article too, which was a major review article on this problem of the origin of life. Now, of course, they say that it happened and they're trying to solve it. But we're only up to trying to form biopolymers and we, we can't even get past that stage under ideal conditions in the laboratory with you know, intelligent scientists directing their chemical reactions. But then we have to even go further than that. We've got to form the genetic code. We just can't form random biopolymers. We've got to form biopolymers that encode for information, that encode for specialised proteins called enzymes. So they have to be sequenced the, correctly, is that right? That's right. The structure of the elements in these codes, uh, in these molecules, has to be of a specific order. And, we've, and then we've got to assemble all these things. We've got to not only have these molecules there and available in the quantities of millions of these long biopolymers, but then when they've got to assemble, they've got to somehow randomly assemble into a complex cell. And if we looked at the structure of even just a cell membrane, you know, and that's easy to draw. You have your little cell and you draw a little line around it and that represents a membrane. But if we drill into the structure of that membrane, that membrane is composed of layer upon layer of highly specialised molecules that are different with little connecting molecules in between them. There's a whole of amazing structure just in the cell membrane itself. And then, of course, then we have all the components inside there. So how can this structure form by itself? You know, that's another major problem. And then even if we get that structure, it's dead. We're going to make it alive. So you're saying that... <laughs> The, the first task is actually to get the structure in place, but that that is still not then alive. How is it made alive? Well, it's actually what's, getting what's the, the structure in part isn't the first part. It's about the third or fourth <laughs> uh, requirement along this chain. of uh, And after stage one, it's all virtually impossible um, to occur by chance. So we're up to you know our fourth stage. Our last stage is then we've got to make this alive. Now, to make it alive, in the simplest cell we know, you would require hundreds of chemical reactions to be in a state of disequilibrium or non-equilibrium, in other words, just out of balance, so that reaction A is producing ingredient B at just the right concentration to be used to form ingredient C, in just the right concentration to produce molecule D and so forth um, for a hundred of reactions. So we, and the moment that we reach equilibrium, the cell dies. Matter of fact, we, if we have these chain reactions, we've only just got to get one of those parts in equilibrium or out of balance and the whole chain stops. What happens is we produce too much of one and we have a side reaction occurring or we don't produce enough and then the reaction stops. It's to balance 400 or so chemical reactions and to start the cell up, all these have to start up all at once, all out of being just out of balance by just the amount, right amount, all at once. We can see immediately it's absolutely impossible. Are we able to make these reactions occur? You're saying that we can't. No, we we can't um, bring a, a cell to life. Maybe, maybe I should re, maybe I should rephrase that. Yeah. Um, so, are you saying that it's impossible for these things, these reactions, 
to occur by chance in the order in the sequence that they're required. Absolutely, we 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 can you know do do some calculations on this, but in absolutely, so we can take say a. a a living cell, and we say an E. coli cell, a very common cell found in the human digestive system, and we can just put a minute drop of toluene on the outside of the cell. What's toluene? Toluene is an organic solvent that is very powerful in dissolving things. Now, that tol- toluene will just make a little hole in the cell membrane, tiny little hole, right, because it's just dissolved some of the material there, and it makes a tiny little hole. Now, just the fact that we make that tiny little hole disrupts the energy balance in that cell. So it puts one little one of the little ATP reactions out of balance. And mm. now that that is out of balance, the whole cell ATP is the down. energy producing. Yes, that's right. It's one of one of the processes that is uh, part of the energy generating system in the cell. And that becomes disrupted because we've disrupted the cell membrane in an in a unnatural way. We've broken a chain of reactions there by doing that. Now all the components of the cell are there, right? All the ingredients, all the all the complex chemicals are there. But we can't make that cell alive again. We can't start it up. No way. Can we because what we've got to do is put hundreds of biochemical reactions back in a state of disequilibrium. It can't happen. And mind you, this has to happen very quickly too because that's, those cells will begin to break down very quickly. So not only do we have the problem in nature of the cell forming by chance, but if it doesn't start up and become alive very quickly and, and develop these self-sustaining, self-repairing mechanisms, it's going to break down. So that's why the origin of life is a, is a major problem. Look, there were... See earlier on, and there's other things we haven't we haven't touched on too, such as the code, the DNA code. The cell has a code to encode for all those different components in the in the in the cell, and that requires these to make the protein. The proteins are made up of amino acids, and amino acids you have a little nitrogen group connected to a little carbonic acid group and a little chain carbon chain molecule hanging off the side. So a fairly simple molecule. And these these molecules occur in a sequence and they actually encode information. Because of their structures, they can have quite different properties and reactions. And they, they sort of behave like letters in a word. And um, so they encode information, but they have to be in a particular order for a code to work. So you just can't write down the random letters in an alphabet, you know, A, Z, H, I, J, Q. Q. Uh, Q. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It's got to be in a particular order, say, W-H-E-N, to mean... What you're saying is then the, this, the complexity of the task is stupendous. Yeah, well, well yes, that's right. Now... Earlier on, scientists thought that maybe there was some property in nature that enabled things to self-organise, and maybe these codes could form by chance. And there was a, a professor uh, at uh, Dean Kenyon, at, uh, he was professor of biology at San Francisco State University, and he wrote the first textbook attempting to explain how these 
codes could form because you've got you not only have to have the molecule come together, but you've got to have these these proteins have to have a meaningful structure. They're not random. Earlier on, they thought that they were just simple repetitions. But as they, and therefore they thought, yes, life is going to be made up of these simple repetitious building blocks. But it's not. The life is extremely complex and involves these very complex codes that make these complex molecules like enzymes that direct other chemical reactions. It, it's unbelievably complex. So they thought, okay, there must be some property in nature that enables these codes to form. And these are some of the theories they're trying to put forward now to propose how life started, like on the surface of a crystal, on a clay, and all these sort of things. They were trying to look at how can somehow natural processes self-order into some meaningful structure. So the atoms of a crystal come together and form a meaningful structure, like a salt crystal in water or sugar crystal or whatever. And so, but we know these are by certain simple structures according to the laws of crystallography. And they are very simple. They're nowhere near the complexity of the structures in the huge uh, biopolymer molecules that constitute the codes in living things. So they thought, okay, there must be some organisation uh, uh, process there. And Dean Kenyon or co-authored the book Biochemical Predestination. And it became, it was a major textbook then on this. But later on, he came to realise, hang on, how can you order the amino acids into a complex code? There, there's no way, no, there's no biochemical system that can do that. And then, of course, since then, and of course, as a result of that, he, he became a creationist. So Dean Kenyon, so he went from the world authority on how life could form from non-living molecules to become a creationist. And because he recognised it is absolutely impossible for the codes to make these enzymes, to make these structures within the molecule, can't form by chance. Absolutely impossible. They are so, so complex. And that's why, again, Francis Collins, when he they determined the genome, the, the human genome, the, the same thing. Um, God must have created those codes. There's no way they can arise by chance. So to me, the as we understand the biochemistry of life, we are looking at prima facie evidence of a super intelligent creator God who created those codes and somehow started the first cells going because they're outside the physical processes that we know today. Now, scientists say, okay, we, we will discover the process, but we know a lot about energy, nuclear reactions, the structure of the atom, chemical reactions. We know a lot now about the, the biochemistry. There's no way that chemical reactions can form a living cell. No way by themselves. So science really has a major explanatory task to undertake. Yes, and, I, and again, scientists that adopt an ideological uh, position that you can't have intelligent design, that everything has to occur by natural processes, and we need to understand that that's an unscientific position. That's a purely philosophical position. That's their belief system. They are sticking to that and they are pushing 
pushing that particular agenda. Now, it's interesting. If you go on YouTube and, and, and Google some of Dean Kenyon's uh, talks, such as Dean Kenyon, the Darwin of our time, and listen to some of his talks, he is challenged and he says now, uh, and the interviewer says now, what do your colleagues feel about this? And he points out that a number of his colleagues don't want him to talk about these issues in the classroom. And this, to me, is a major moral problem that we have in science education today. We know from biochemistry that it is absolutely impossible for the first living cell to have arisen by chance by natural processes. It's a miracle. It, it is outside science as we know it in terms of physical naturalism. But this impossibility can't be readily discussed in the classroom. And, and to me, this, this is just morally wrong. And the evidence that points to the fact that it is absolutely impossible, Dean Kenyon was pointed out, a number of his colleagues and the organisation weren't happy for him to talk about that in the classroom. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been explaining why a cell cannot form by chance or naturalistic processes. When we come back... John will focus on the probability issues and chance formation of cellular life. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973456 If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. In this part of the program, John will tell us why probability is a massive problem for the chance formation of life. John, we've noted the chemical and biochemical problems for the formation of life by chance. Yes. Tell us about the probability of proteins or gene sequences arising with specific encoded information by chance processes. Right. Well, this is a major, major challenge for um, chemical evolution. And as I was saying before, uh, Professor Dean Kenyon uh, from uh, Professor of Biology at San Francisco State University um, recognised this, that the structures of these uh, proteins are such that they have to have meaning. So let's take the, the phrase, uh, a stitch in time saves nine. We use particular words. Now, those words see the letters in particular order. So time, we've got the T, then the I, then the M, then the E. If we had M, T, I, E, 
it doesn't doesn't mean anything to us, does it? So the order is very important. Now, there's 21 letters in that phrase. We, If we jumbled up those letters, it doesn't mean anything. So it's only to, going to mean a stitch in time saves nine if that is in that particular order. Now, there's 21 letters there and there's 10 different types of letters. So if we, say, took a, a young child, say a one-year-old, and we gave them... 21 uh, copies of each of the 10 letters, so it's 210 letters, and ask them to put them in order. Now, the possible combinations that they could have there are, believe it or not, 10 to the 20 combinations. That's 10 with 20 zeros afterwards. Now, what that means is that if we gave that little one-year-old uh, as much time as the uh, as the Earth is old, four and a half billion years, and he put a new or letter the in place. Supposed age of the Earth. <laughs> supposed age of the Earth, yes. Or the, that uh, people talk about four and a half billion years, and every second they moved a letter into place and formed a uh, a new word. There, there still wouldn't be enough time to cover all the possibilities. Now, of course, one of the things could happen is maybe on the second go. It could arrange the letters in that happening. But we know from probability if that happened, the next time getting it in second go is not likely to happen. And every person who buys a lottery ticket knows this. Even winners, they win. The next time they don't win. It's very rare for a person to win a major lottery uh, more than once. And that's the way probability works. Now, when we look at the structures of these components in a cell, there's hundreds of complex molecules with codes in just these simplest cells. And these are huge molecules. Now, some of these proteins, if we look at something a little bit more complicated, like, say, an amino acid sequence uh, of, say, with a with 100 um, uh, little bases in it, <clears throat> these amino acids, to order to a form in the in the right form. These amino acids are joined by what we call peptide bonds. So in order for them to work in the enzymes and the codes, they have to have a particular type of bond, type called a peptide bond. But there are other types. There are non-peptide bonds that can form. Now, if we have, uh, if we have these 100 molecules here together and they're going to form uh, a linkage, the chances of all those hundred amino acids being linked by the correct bond is, say, for each one, there's a one in two chance, right? It's sort of like heads or tails for for each bond. But once we have a hundred, between a hundred of those um, <clears throat> uh, molecules to, to form the long chain molecule, you've got 99 bonds. So 99, so if you've got a one in two chance or a half to the power 99, turns out to be one chance in 10 to the power 30, approximately. So that's one chance in a quadrillion quadrillion of just that bonding being correct, let alone in the correct order. So, you know, the, the, and that's only one short protein. Now, we've got another, we've got another problem here too. We've got um, the problem of chirality or the fact that all these molecules can exist in two forms. They have a particular molecular structure that means that one, you can 
arranged the structure with the same chemical composition, but two physical structures, one, say, representing the left hand and one the right hand. So if you look at your right and your left hand and you hold them opposite to one another, you can see that one is sort of like the mirror image. You can imagine if you held your right hand up to the mirror, it would look like your left hand. Hmm. But they're different. You can't put your right hand in a left-handed glove because they are mirror images. And molecules are the same way. So both your hands have five fingers and so forth and the same structure, but one's the mirror image of the other. And that's what occurs in molecules. And we have left and right-handed form. Now, all the biological molecules that are involved in these structures are all the left-handed forms. Matter of fact, from memory, for example, snake venom contains these amino acids in the right-handed form, and that's why it's venomous. That's why it's poisonous. And so all these molecules have to be in this form. Now, there's a one in two chance that they can form either the right or left-handed form. So again, if we have these molecules, and we've got 100 of these amino acids here that have got a form and come together by chance, you've got to have only left-handed ones come together by chance. So you've, again, got a one in two, heads in tails type chance. One in two, again, to the power 100 is, again, approximately 10 to the power 30. So we're now up to 10 to the power 60 chance of just those amino acids forming together to form that 100-chain sequence, just all being joined by a peptide bond and all being joined in the left-handed form. Now, there's only 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. We're getting up to pretty close to the, the, you know, the chances of finding a, a particular atom in our galaxy. Matter of fact, I think uh, there's about 10 to the 60 atoms in our galaxy. So or is it our solar system? Anyway, something like that. So it's a sort of chance of finding, say you've got one atom with a red dot on it, the chances of finding that atom first go is about the same chance of that particular molecule, only 100 chains long, forming. But that doesn't mean that it has meaning, that the amino acids are still just random. We haven't put them in a meaningful order. So that's just like putting those uh, letter, 100 letters together. They don't necessarily read anything. They don't necessarily make a meaningful sentence. They're just random letters together. So once we start putting order in these things so that that 100 sequence represents a specific code that has a specific meaningful purposeful function, then the probability just blows out astronomically. Uh, matter of fact, the, we can do some of those calculations for a simple gene. And one of the calculations that I've seen, the probability comes out at about 1 in 10 to the power 90. So that's like the chances of finding an atom with a red dot if there are a number of universes, the size of our universe, with the number of atoms in our universe, if there are as many universes as there are atoms in our universes, the chances of finding that specific single atom out of all those universes is about the same chance of one of these genes forming with a meaningful code. 
And that just, that just blows the mind. And that's just one. That's just one gene out of hundreds of genes that are responsible for the simplest cell. The simplest cell that we know of, Mycoplasma genitalium, has about 270 genes in it. 270 of these specific codes are there. And we know that the, the chances of it, of those codes forming is, like now, is like one in finding a specific atom with a red dot in it, an atom, out of all the atoms in as many universes as there are atoms in the universe. My mind is working hard to digest all this information. <laughs> and, uh, well, it, this is it. It blows the mind, Barry. It blows the mind. And, and philosophers have actually looked at this. What, what is the definition of something being impossible? A number of people have, have, have looked at this and and I think a well-recognised definition of something being impossible is if the chance is less than 1 in 10 to the power 150. And that's pretty close to if there's 10 to the 80 atoms in the universes and you've got 10 to the 80 universes, then that's uh, the chances of finding a single atom in that uh, in all those universes is uh, 1 in 10 to the power 160. So that's pretty close to the definition of what we would call impossible. We actually say impossible occurs a little bit before then. <laughs> and so, you know, realistically, we, we've got that cutoff point. When we do the calculations to calculate these codes, and it's uh, and and this is in the standard biological literature where uh, scientists have attempted this. Some science at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for example, I think, have done calculations along these lines. A number of um, looking at statistical biochemistry, we look at these areas. Now, this, this field has been around too since the 60s, hasn't it? When the mathematicians started to look at the probability issues. Oh, yes. Well, but since then, well, that's right. They saw evolution was impossible, you know, back in, in the 60s in terms but of... But the biologists have been slow to accept that. Well, yes, they've they've sort of re they had rejected it, but now that we understand a whole lot more about genetics, we understand a whole lot more about the the role of these codes in generating the enzymes, and of course, just recently with the uh, encode uh, research that was published the other year, where we see that there are codes within the codes themselves. Um, now that's staggering, isn't it, to think that whichever way you read the code, that you've got a different code. Well, yes, there are codes within the, within the codes themselves that um, it, it makes it it's absolutely impossible for the human brain to be able to write these codes, the codes that are encoded for in DNA. Matter of fact, I was reading not so long ago a statement by Bill Gates, who we uh, know owns uh, you know, Microsoft there and is very familiar with code programming. And he's, he was saying that the code on DNA is just more complex than any human computer code that we have devised. And again, that, that statement came out before we had the ENCODE research. And we all know that if you get just a single bit wrong in a code, it can sometimes just destroy the, the efficacy of the entire program. Mm. Well, that's like, even with the with the phrase, a stitch in time saves nine, you have more than a few letters, and that's only 21 letters, you have more than a few letters out of position, and most people wouldn't pick the phrase. Mm. 
Maybe one or two out of, yes, we get enough. But once you have a, more than a, a, a few, half a dozen letters out of phrase, people get very confused. And it takes, would take a very bright mind to, to pick up what it was saying. So when you get these codes that involve thousands of letters in their code, the, the, the complexity is absolutely enormous. But the other thing, there's more. You see, you also have to have a code reading system. Hmm. And this is where Bolge is saying, look, the, the probability of those codes arising is just you know, beyond astronomical. It's in, the, it's in the realm of impossible. If we, you know, we have to define what is impossible. We've got to have a cutoff point. And, you know, maybe you can argue uh, where it is, but I think it's a very reasonable argument as a chance less than uh, 1 in 10 to the 150 because, you know, given the time that is claimed for the age of the Earth, um, you know, these reactions have to take place. There's only a certain speed at which these reactions can take place. It's just not And you enough. need enzymes to speed up the reactions too, don't <laughs> well, you? Well, that's right. And even if one happens, you, you've you still got to form, you know, the next on you and you're back to square one in terms of probability. And while you're wanting the next one to form by chance, there's all these environmental factors that are breaking down the first one that is formed by chance. But the problem is that you just don't form one by chance. You've got to form millions and and this is the other thing that I think it's just so hard for our human brain to to get about that in the components of the cell, the simplest cell that we have, there are actually millions of biopolymers are required in the simplest cell, millions of biopolymers, probably tens of millions in fact of biopolymers are required in the simplest cell. And many of those biopolymers are nucleic acids that have specific codes. And and this is why it is just so hard for the human mind to get round this this concept of these. But even if we have the these are just forming the molecules, we've got to still assemble them somehow. We haven't solved that problem. How do they assemble themselves into a cell? And then we haven't made it alive. And then, then you have I, the problem of actually the cell reproducing itself. Well, that's right, and that's the you know the reproductive system comes in, and this is where you have the code reader system. You've got this code, but then you've got to have the little code reader in factory to make the components from the code. And as Eugene Conan, you know, one of the world's leading biologists, points out at the at the time, how can you have a code reading system form? that reads the code just at the right time and be assembled there. You know, a code reading system that works to read the code. I mean, how long did it take? You know, the, during the Second World War, the British had a whole lot of their top brains working to crack the German codes, right? Because the Germans had a code you, to make a, a reader system that could read the code. And yet we're expecting we have highly complex codes within the DNA, codes within codes, and we have a code reader system that can read these codes and then make those, assemble proteins according to those meaningful codes. It, it blows the mind that we can then assemble those proteins, that little system. But what's more, there's more in that the code to make the code reading system is encoded for in the original code. That really blows the mind, doesn't it? 
That, defi- code, that defies naturalistic explanation. Uh, absolutely. And this is why the cell, when we drill down, when we understand the biochemistry of a living cell, we have powerful evidence right in our face, so to speak, under the microscope, of the evidence of God, a powerful supernatural creator, a supernatural force created life. Life is supernatural. There's no physical explanation for life. Life is supernatural. These scientists that are clinging to their naturalistic, materialistic worldview can't explain life. Life is supernatural. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. That brings up the the whole um, explanation as to why people continue to believe in a naturalistic origin of life in the face of all these difficulties. Mm. And maybe we can have a look at that a little later in the series. Yeah, sure. Yes. And, and th- this is so sad. People claim, hang on, if you reject evolution, you're going to knock back uh, scientific research. To me, that is a whole lot of codswallop. It's... It's absolutely ridiculous. If we recognise that a supermind designed the system, we are intelligent. Matter of fact, the Bible says we're made in the image of that supermind. We can begin to apply logic to the systems around us. I believe that scientific research would progress so much faster. Matter of fact, the mechanical view came about in terms of the fact that when we look at Descartes, he believed that God set up the system and that God was a mathematician and therefore the laws and the principles of nature would follow mathematical laws. And that led to Newton embracing that concept to discover the laws of physics. The major discoveries in science were based on and and actually developed and were discovered on the basis that we believe that the system that we live in, our universe, was created by an intelligent God who therefore used logic and would use logical laws. And that led to the discoveries. And the same thing, once we believe that God created life, I think it will really progress our medicine, our biology and everything. John, that's really very difficult stuff to digest quickly. I'm going to have to think about some of those things. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for the conversation today. I look forward to the conversation next time. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations My guest today has been Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Today in our conversation, Dr. Ashton has explained why a cell cannot form by chance. Next time I'll be talking with Dr. Ashton about his claim that new types of organisms cannot evolve by random mutations. Remember to join me next time on Science Conversations. Until then, bye for now and God bless you. (laughs) 